Hello and welcome to the planet today. It is Friday, March 24th, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how is it going, my man? Matt, it is going phenomenally on this National Cheesesteak Day. Uh, <laughs> anyone out there, go have a cheesesteak. Go to uh, Uncle Luke's. Uh, go to Uncle Tony's. Uh, all the good places to get a cheesesteak. Delisandro's if you're in Philly. Delisandro's. Apparently you go. the best one. That's, Gino's that's on my Pats. List. Yep, Gino's Pats. Al's Beef. What's your go-to order? Um, I like I like just a simple beef. I like just a simple peppers and onions cheesesteak. Uh, no whiz, no whiz. I am a whiz wit. Add mushrooms. Gotta add the mushrooms. Ugh. Disgusting, dude. The whiz is like it's just good. It tastes good. I like the whiz. I don't care what it is. It is. It tastes right. Well, I don't know why you would want that artificial flavor on your cheesesteak. I don't get it. Doesn't feel as good to me as like a real cheese. All right, let's give the people what they came here for. Um, we actually have such a jam-packed episode that we won't even be covering President Biden's veto that protects ESG funds until next week. So, uh, hey, if you don't like today's episode, make sure you come back next week anyway. All right, let's do it. hits for the week and the first one is by time magazines michael phyllis and matthew daly and it's titled epa to limit pfas forever chemicals in drinking water awesome news to kick off the day but i will start this with a quick caveat if you're really involved in the issue of pfas your first thought might have been well it's about time Either way, this is good news as the EPA has proposed limiting the amount of per- and polyfluoral alkyl substances, or PFAS, aka forever chemicals, in drinking water to the lowest level that tests can detect. PFAS had been used in consumer products at industry since 1940s to make materials water and stain resistant. This move is projected to save thousands of lives and prevent serious illnesses, including cancer, according to the EPA. This is the first time the EPA has proposed regulating PFAS, which are widespread, dangerous, and difficult to remove from water. They are called forever chemicals because they don't break down naturally in the environment. PFAS are unfortunately linked to several different issues, such as low birth weight in babies and kidney cancer, among others. EPA Assistant Administrator for Water, Radhika Fox, said it's clear PFAS are linked to significant health risk. So this, quote, transformational change could reduce exposure for nearly 100 million Americans, decreasing the rates of cancer, heart attacks and birth complications. This proposed rule would limit PFAS levels to four parts per trillion in drinking water. Additionally, water providers will have to monitor for PFAS. The official ruling is expected by the end of the year, so the public will get a chance to comment before a final rule is established. The authors write, environmental and public health advocates have called for federal regulation of PFAS chemicals for years. 
The EPA has repeatedly strengthened its protective voluntary health thresholds for the chemicals, but has not imposed mandatory limits on water providers. These limits are stronger than any state had previously proposed, so this is really great to see. The goal is for water providers to test their water, notify the public when PFAS are found, and remove them when the levels are too high. This move will reduce illnesses on a massive scale as everyone, including vulnerable communities, will be protected. For people wondering where the money will come from, the EPA recently made $2 billion available to states to get rid of contaminants, including PFAS, and will release billions more in the next few years. It will be expensive for utilities to install new equipment, especially for smaller towns with fewer resources and less funding, so they'll probably have to rely on funding from the 2021 U.S. infrastructure law. All right, not going to get into this too much because, like we said, we have a jam-packed episode, but that is exactly why I like a larger government. We have covered PFAS a lot on this show, and that's because they've been receiving more coverage in the past few years than we're used to seeing. So it's great to see an issue that's affecting so many people being dealt with. And, and look, that does not happen without public awareness and public advocacy. Yeah, 100%. Like, I, I know you, we said um, the public will get a chance to comment before the rule is actually established, but who would be opposed to this bill? I, I don't understand. This is something that is across the board a good thing there is no negative sides to this unless you're a water company that has to you know upgrade their whole system yeah and and i think that's probably going to be the opposition is water utilities that are like hey we can't afford this and look that's why we had that infrastructure law passed uh, almost two years ago now for circumstances like this to upgrade our infrastructure of which water infrastructure counts so yeah even for those people who are opposing it on monetary reasons, like what's going to cost more like scavenging together some funds for upgrading your infrastructure or having to deal with tons of exposure to potential cancer risks or low birth weight babies that don't make it because of complications. So whatever the monetary value we're going to put on upgrading the infrastructure, it, it pales in comparison to what we would end up having to use to help, people, which is arguably, actually inarguably more important than pipes for water. Yeah. Well said. All right, let's move on to our next story. And it's from the Associated Press where Seth Borenstein and Frank Jordan's write world on thin ice as UN climate report gives start warning. So let's start this off by saying this is bad news. This sounds terrible. Um, I will say that it might not be as bad as it sounds, and we're going to get into this, so don't read this article and immediately think we have hit doomsday. Um, We haven't yet. We just know it's coming, and we have time to fix it. So that's kind of your quick, brief caveat. Let's get into the article some more. The latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, report came out earlier this week and said that we are reaching a tipping point. We still have a chance, but this is close to our last chance to prevent the worst of climate change's future destruction. To prevent that, we need to cut carbon pollution by nearly two-thirds by 2035. We also need to end new fossil fuel exploration and that rich countries need to be coal, oil, and gas-free by 2040. Antonio Guterres, our boy, the United Nations Secretary General, said, Our world needs climate action on all fronts. Everything, everywhere, all at once. 
Wink, nudge. Nice. He also called for rich countries to accelerate their net zero goals from 2050 to as early as 2040, while developing nations should be the ones striving for 2050. This is about a decade earlier than most current targets, but according to Guterres, humanity is on thin ice and the ice is melting fast. The next quote is really important, and this is kind of what I alluded to in the beginning. It says, we are not on the right track, but it's not too late, said report co-author and water scientist Aditi Mukherjee. Our intention is really a message of hope and not that of doomsday, meaning it isn't too late. But if you're not fired up or angry at government inaction over the past several decades, you are not paying attention. And that statement I just said can be directed to so many governments across the world. You know, it's easy yeah. for me and Nick to criticize U.S. inaction as U.S. citizens. But look, look across the world. You know, what, what countries have stepped up and who has stepped up enough and who stepped up way earlier than the rest. It's, it's not that many, you know, like most countries were very late on acting on this. Yeah. The world has already warmed by 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So it's becoming increasingly difficult to keep that number below 1.5 degrees Celsius, or even our more conservative goal of 2.0 degrees Celsius. Part of the reason this report and the recommendations issued by the IPCC are so important is because this could be the last time they issue a report before it's too late. IPCC reports take years to research and craft due to the amount of scientists involved and the peer review process. By the time the next one comes out, we could already be past our tipping point or we could listen to the suggestions in this report and be on the path to a better future. We are going to need developed nations to decarbonize as soon as possible, but fixing the situation is also going to take financial backing to support developing countries. Those developing countries need three to six times as much financial help to adapt to a warming climate and transition to carbon-free energy. IPCC Chief Wei Sung Lee said the pace of action needs to increase. We are walking when we should be sprinting. And, and that right there, that analogy is kind of the thing that just has really been getting to me. Really, anytime we talk about, you know, last year was COP27, the year before was COP26, any global climate treaty or negotiation, even dating back to Paris or, or before that, it just always seemed like we were moving too slow. And, you know, I remember saying this last year and the year before, we know how to fix climate change. We have the technology, we have the tools, we just need our leaders to get off their ass and do something about it. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not like we're still trying to figure out, is climate change happening? Is climate change real? Is climate change human cause? We know the answer to all of those is yes. We also know how to fix it. We just need our politicians to do it and to look, is it going to hurt the economy temporarily as we get off fossil fuels? Maybe, probably. Yeah. I'll take that over a non-livable planet where we don't have an opportunity to get the economy to bounce back. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, we're at this point now where we need to look at the ma the most major polluters and the most major people who contribute to climate change and just completely overhaul, you know, what they're doing, how they're, yeah. how, the, how much they're producing, you know, whatever it is. I know we always talk about the U S on this show, but 
China and India, if we can get those two to move on climate change, to, to do something, to do more, maybe we can get to 1.5 or keep it at 1.5, I should say. And the thing is, like, India needs financial backing to do that. And China and the U.S. are a really good example of why global politics is so nuanced and so nitpicky because China will say the U.S. is the world's leader in carbon emissions of all time. They need to do more. That statement is correct. But we, as the U.S., will say China is the current largest emitter of carbon emissions. They need to do more. And that statement is also correct, but we're treating it like it's this zero sum game where only one of those statements is true. Yeah. And it's really just blocking us from making genuine progress when in reality, like we, it doesn't need to be one country or the other. It needs to be all of us. Exactly. A global, you've said this before on the show, global problems require global solutions. Yeah. And we're seeing that last, last week we talked about it with Iraq, you know, they're, they're moving to, decarbonize, I forget what percentage of their electricity by 2030, but like you're seeing these smaller countries that have had a way smaller impact on climate change, still creating solid plans. Yeah. So, you know, China is currently the world's leader in solar panel production. And I think the world leader in solar energy production, they can, they also can't just like sit on that as if that's enough in the same way that the U.S. can't sit on like, oh, like our emissions were a little bit lower now than they were two years ago. Like, who cares? They need to be way lower. And we benefited so much from carbonization yeah. and from the global fossil fuel economy that it is now our turn to pay that back by helping, you know, your developing nations put solar panels on their roofs and out in their fields and wind turbines out you know, offshore, like we need to help everyone else because they aren't going to get a chance to benefit from the very system that made us a global superpower. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is worth ending this segment with a reminder that scientists aren't saying the world or humanity is going to end as soon as earth passes that 1.5 degree mark we mentioned. It's just that drought, flooding, hurricanes, wildfires, etc., get a lot worse for every fraction of a degree past that. So 1.5 is the goal. 2.0, still livable, but not as good. Anything above 2.0, like we are going to be in for a rude awakening. So best way to adapt to that is just mitigate climate change and don't let it happen. The IPCC says that wind and solar aren't just the best ways to mitigate climate change. They're cheaper than alternatives and create new jobs, economic development, resilient power systems, and cleaner air. That clean air supports biodiversity, too. All right, our next story is titled Green Climate Fund Approves Financing for Herencia, Colombia from the World Wildlife Fund. Some happy news to close out the first half of today's show. Last week, the Green Climate Fund approved $43 million in funding for Herencia, Colombia, or HECO, which is an initiative to permanently protect 32 million hectares of Colombia's landscapes and seascapes. This was developed by the WWF, the Colombian government, and groups of community, public sector, and private sector advocates. WWF's president and CEO, Carter Roberts, celebrated this decision by saying, Herencia Colombia promises to tackle the crises of climate change and nature loss on a big scale. This initiative will help to limit emissions on par with removing nearly 10 million cars from the road for a full year. It's really important to remember that there is a lot of good happening in the natural world right now for all the times we feel despair. You know, for every story that we talk about 
the, the last one, for example, there is a lot of good going on. So this should be one of those stories that we can look at and say, we do have a chance at protecting biodiversity, at protecting our natural systems, our, our natural world. Like the last story we spoke about said, we are not doomed. We have all the tools we need. We just need our governments to pick up the pace of action and do the right thing, whatever the cost. And this is something where we are seeing Colombia's government say, we are going to do the right thing with the help of the Green Climate Fund. Yeah, 100%. It's on the policymakers. And because it's on the policymakers to to do something, it's also on us as citizens of of each country to pressure and put a fire under the of your politicians um, in order to get what we want done in office. So absolutely, absolutely agree with you. And uh, you know, a good place to start, if you didn't listen to it already, go back and listen to Monday's episode where I interviewed Dr. Ruth Backstrom. Um, She has a book coming out six days from now, March 30th. And it's pretty much about that topic. It's called igniting a bold new democracy. So go check that out. Go check out the episode after this one. If you haven't already, Um, we are going to take a quick break and we actually have three more quick hits for you when we get back. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, Lyme isn't the only tick disease to worry about in the Northeast, CDC says, by Emily Anthes of the New York Times. Cases of a tick-borne disease called babesiosis have more than doubled between 2011 and 2019 in some U.S. states in the Northeast. Babesiosis can be fatal in people with compromised immune systems, but most people would be either asymptomatic or develop flu-like symptoms if infected. It's now endemic in 10 states in the Northeast and the Midwest, and scientists believe this could be due to rising temperatures and the increasing deer population, which are both advantageous for ticks. In 2019 alone, there were more than 2,300 cases of babesiosis, which is double what was found in 2011. It's most common in New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, but the steepest increases in cases was found in Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, and Connecticut. In Midwestern states, the number of cases held mostly steady. Looking at the number of cases, the disease appears to be traveling north, which is likely because of the warming climate pushing ticks further north. 
Ticks prefer warm, wet conditions, and climate change is making the Northeast, which is an already wet area, even warmer, even more moist, even more hospitable for ticks. Another potential rise in the number of cases is increased awareness of the disease. More doctors are testing for babesiosis than in previous years. Luckily, it can be treated with antimicrobial drugs, but it's best to avoid tall grass and underbrush, wear tick repellent, or wear long pants when you can. Daily tick checks are another way to make sure you remove the ticks before you can become infected. Yeah, it's definitely easier said than done, but it's like the same way that people are always like, oh, you know the best way to handle getting Lyme's disease? Just don't get it. (laughs) Make sure you check for ticks. Make sure you wear your tick spray pants if you're going to be out hiking and it's not incredibly hot. Um, Again, easier said than done. And we're not here to tick-borne illness shame people if they they do get infected. But this one is something where it's the same deal. Like You need to be smart about if you are in a tick-infested area generally, don't pass up on the checks. Yeah, hundred percent. And like we we have to keep the deer population down too. You know, like it's it's kind of getting crazy. Just speaking from personal experience, Bocce has gotten so many. My dog has gotten so many ticks. Like lately, I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially at the end of last year too. Even it was just so bad. But it's because the winter has been so mild. You know, like there's been exactly no frost to kill off the ticks. Plus, like you said, the deer population is getting pretty high again because we have either forced out or killed off a lot of their natural predators. Yep. Then you factor in just climate change in general, making this area warmer and wetter. Like it's, it's all of these factors that this is the real world implications of climate change that don't include, you know, natural disasters. It's just more diseases being able to spread as we interact with nature more. Yes, exactly. Well said. The next story is from CNN's Rachel Ramirez, who writes, your pollen allergies are already overwhelming. And here's why. (laughs) You are right. They are, Rachel Ramirez. Speaking from experience, source me. Keeping with our theme of climate change increasing seasonal issues like ticks, pollen counts have been very high this spring, including in Atlanta, where the Atlanta Allergy and Asthma Physicians Practice observed extremely high pollen counts last week which is the earliest in a calendar year that this threshold had been reached in the 30 years of tracking. In Washington, D.C., the first high tree pollen count appeared a month ago on February 8th with 487 grains per every cubic meter of air. This is the highest count on record so early in the season. Basically, pollen is moving off of plants earlier this year due to warmer winters and the length of frost-free seasons increasing as the planet warms. A nonprofit called Climate Central found that growing season is lasting 16 days longer in the southeast, 15 days longer in the northeast, and 14 days longer in the south. In the west, this number is up to 27 days on average. Some areas blow this number out of the water with Reno, Nevada as an example from the article. Its growing season is 99 days longer than it was in 1970. A longer growing season means a longer allergy season for those impacted by pollen and mold allergies. Pollen can also trigger asthma attacks for people with serious cases of asthma, so pretty serious. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if uh, we've spoken about this on the show, but I actually have allergy-induced asthma. So during like April to late summer, I need to use an inhaler. 
uh, lately, last couple of years, I feel like I've been using my inhaler sometimes in February or March, which I didn't have to do when I first got diagnosed in 2016. Yeah. Um, luckily, my asthma is not very bad, but I really do feel for people who are struggling more than usual just because pollen counts are higher earlier in the year and those pollen counts are lasting longer. Yeah. And like we mentioned earlier, mold allergies are also increasing due to the warmer and wetter conditions helping more mold to develop. Dr. Mitchell Grayson of the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America's Medical Scientific Council recommends a few things if you are struggling from seasonal allergies. Number one, staying indoors, especially early in the morning or late in the afternoon when most plants release pollen. I don't think I knew that. Number two, keeping windows closed in your home and car to minimize your exposure to pollen. Number three, changing air filters more often for your AC and heating systems in your home and car. And the last one is preparing early by stocking up on anti-allergy medications. That last one might be a plug from Big Pharma. Um, (laughs) But nonetheless, it is nice to have the Zyrtec on deck. Yeah. Uh, I will say that. Yeah, and he also adds that if you use a steroid nasal spray, you should start using it one or two weeks before allergy season and then continue to use it throughout the full season to get the best effects. All of those things are reasons to say pollen allergies, mold allergies suck. They're really difficult to deal with for a lot of people. Um, It's not as easy for everyone to say, okay, I'm going to stay indoors because some people work outside. Some people need to go outside to get to work in the early morning or the late afternoon. Yeah. Um, The rest are things we could probably do, you know, keep your windows closed if you can at home. That way you don't have pollen just flooding into your, your safe space. Yes. Um, Changing the air filters. I am guilty of not doing that enough, AKA not doing that at all. So (laughs) here are things that we as the TPT community can be better about this spring. Uh, That way our allergies aren't as bad. Yeah. hundred percent. I think the change in the air filter thing would help a lot. Um, But I'm such like that last one too is like, um, or the last thing that you said, I should say is very much targeted at me. I only use it when I need it. <laughs> like I will only start using it the first day that I feel something Yeah, and then I won't do it at all. You know, like if I stop noticing it or if it's not as bad, I'll just stop completely like using it. Um, so yeah, I, I got to get better at that. That's something I got to work on this year. That's my, that's my allergy goal for the year. We sound like we're just like too sniffling, like like just red nosed like individuals. That's because we are. We're just like, oh, <laughs> let's do this podcast. Like. <laughs> All right, let's get into our last quick hit of the week. Thanks for sticking with us. If you are still here, appreciate you. And it's by Karen McVeigh of The Guardian, who writes, "Historic moment for nature as Europe's first wild river national park announced in Albania." Closing this one out with some positive news. Albania has made the Viosa River a national park, which is home to over 1,000 plant and animal species. It flows 168 miles or 270 kilometers from the Pindus Mountains in Greece through plains and forests in Albania and into the Adriatic coast. The Viosa River has been the proposed site for 45 hydropower plants, but has now received federal protections. This move has put Albania at the forefront of river protection, according to this article. Albania's Prime Minister, Edi Rama, announced the park at a ceremony at Tepelena Castle overlooking the river and said, this is about to change a mindset. Protecting an area does not mean that you enshrine it in isolation from the economy. 
So that quote is in reference to Rama stating that national parks attract 20% more tourists than non-protected areas. So this is a smart move for the environment of Albania. This is a smart move for the economy of Albania. This is just genuinely a win-win. Another important quote came from Morella Kumbaro Firxi, Albania's tourist and environment minister, who said, maybe Albania does not have the power to change the world, but it can create successful models of protecting biodiversity and natural assets. And that's so important. Yeah. You don't have to change the world if you could change mindsets, like we're saying here, so that everyone, every country wants to start protecting wild rivers and wild places and their own biodiversity. You know, it's better for the economy as well as the environment. It's just all around the right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. The hope now is that more rivers in Europe will receive similar protections, including the remaining unprotected parts of the Viosa River in Greece. Patagonia's CEO, Ryan Gellert, said that this new national park was proof that the destruction of nature did not have to be the price of progress. Hell yeah. It's all just about ethical decisions here. You know, we, we had our day in the sun. We had our fun destroying the planet and letting capitalism run rampant and letting economies grow and grow no matter what the cost was. Now is the time to scale back and do the right thing like we probably should have been doing for the last hundred years. But, you know, protecting those parts of the world that give us so much yeah. Because without them, we're not going to be able to keep living the way that we do. Yeah, the world will become a much more uninteresting place. Let's let's say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's such a good point that he brought up, um, the prime minister. Protecting an area does not mean that you enshrine it in isolation from the economy. It's not like you're just like protecting it so that no one can go. It's completely circled up. It's not like a conservation area where it's like, you know, the area is like protected. It's like a protected area. You know, we're building up the... They're not putting a wall around it and saying like, don't enjoy this area. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah. it's still it's still for the public to enjoy. It's still for um, people to enjoy. So yeah, can't lose. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of our national park system where it protects natural areas, but there's hiking paths. You know, there's bathrooms. Right. There's There's a way for us all to get out into nature more without having this crazy impact on the plants and animals that live there, we're just all kind of living in harmony there. Exactly. Yep. Love it. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of TPT. We'll be back in a week for another episode, but until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can follow our socials at planet today pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Chanus produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check it out. Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Peace.